0: Blog Talk Radio. You are unbelievable. I met you the other night. You are the producer and the director of this film, Canary in a Coal Mine. And um, I just want to let the audience know who you are. Um, you are, were a doctoral st- student um, in the Department of Government at Harvard University. Um, you are now on medical leave, and prior to that, you were a print journalist in Beijing, East Africa, and you've earned your A.B. in politics from Princeton University. Um, and your story is just unbelievable. You, you were signing a check at a restaurant when you found that you could not write your own name. Um, and this was months before your wedding. You became progressively more ill, um, losing the ability to even sit in a wheelchair. I mean, you know, this is devastating. Um, Tell us a little bit about how this happened, because, I mean, I I think that nobody, like you say in the, the trailer, it is so crazy, this disorder, that nobody could believe it. Yeah,
1: well, I, I, I didn't believe it either <laughs> as it was happening to me. It was a little bit unbelievable. Um, I, I mean, basically what happened is a year before, so the, the check in the restaurant moment was um, my first neurological symptom. But a year before that, I had come down with the worst fever of my life. Um, my temperature was like 104.7 degrees, and it held for five days until I went down to 102. And I had, a, I had a 10-day fever, which has never happened in my life. And um, after the fever, um, I um, became extremely dizzy and, um, you know, had to sort of hug the walls to make it to the bathroom. And I, I had to lay in bed, and I couldn't leave my house um, for, I think, about uh, two weeks. And I went to the doctor and was examined, and they said, oh, you, you have a, an inner ear infection, um, was their was conclusion, and sent me home and said I, I would be better in a few days. Um, And then a few weeks later, I had a sore throat, and then that lasted for two days, and then once that was over, I was dizzy again. Um, And this kept happening. This sort of, you know, whether my illness lasted for a few days or for a week, once the sort of normal sinus infection, sore throat was over, I would have, like, this extreme dizziness. And um, for the first year, you know, I kept going to my doctor, and I kept saying, you know, I think there's something wrong with my immune system. And he said, you know, oh, that's impossible. If there was something wrong with your immune system, it would have been wrong since you were a child. Um, and, you know, every possible explanation that I would give to him of, like, I think something is wrong, here's what I'm seeing, and there's a pattern, um, he kept ignoring because the pattern, that, the pattern was there, but it wasn't the pattern that he had been trained to see in medical school. And so, um, you know, I had stretches of, of time when I was actually completely well during the first year. And then I was at this restaurant, and a check came, and I couldn't find my name. And it was a bizarre experience if you've never had it before. Um, And I'm kind of used to it now. But um, I, I, you know, was looking at the check. I was thinking of my name. I was imagining myself drawing gold that is,
0: you know, a part
1: of the first letter J. And I could not move my hand. And it took me a while to realize that... um, I had actually just lost the ability to draw a curve. And I could not write, you know, J's or C's or, you know, the second part of the letter D. um, And this sort of progressed into what I was diagnosed with ER with, which was a, you know, complex migraine or an atypical migraine. And um, so to make a long story short, I finally ended up at a neurologist. And he um, sort of said, okay, well, maybe you have... Um, maybe you're having epilepsy, uh, epileptic uh, episodes. Maybe you have, you're you, you're you know a migraineur who's just sort of come <laughs> into her own, and he ruled those out. And the third option was that I had conversion disorder, which he explained to me as a um, a sort of uh, you know physical symptoms that felt very real, but that were being produced by some unconscious. Um, you know, stress or repressed trauma. And I thought, that is such a strange explanation. But, um, you know, I was, um, you know, doing a master's in stats, and I was sort of being trained in scientific thinking. And so I thought, okay, like, I don't want to reject this hypothesis out of hand. Let me compare it to sort of the data that I have and sort of think about it for a while. And so, um, you know, he, I asked him, is my was the science infection that I had last year, um, after which I was busy for three weeks, for which I took antibiotics, you know, was that psychosomatic? Is the pain that I'm feeling right now in my legs psychosomatic? And he said yes. So I walked home with my husband um, from the um, medical clinic and um, back to my house, and um, I was at a mile and, um, you know, kind of meditating on the psychosomatic pain in my legs. And when I got home, I just collapsed and my brain and my spinal cord were burning, and right. um, I don't I mean I had a fever, I mean, they were, they were. It, it was, I had never been aware that I had a spinal cord until this day. It was the strangest, strangest, strangest feeling, and it was excruciatingly painful. I couldn't walk, I could not move, when I would walk, I could not move one foot in front of the other more than about an inch apart, because I, I just had lost all mobility, and so, um, and from that time, I mean, I've basically never been as well as I was the day that I was in the office and it was diagnosed with conversion disorder. And I think that, you know, he, he didn't tell me to exercise, which is what a lot of, which is the advice that a lot of people get. But I think if I had, if he told me in that moment, you have myalgic <laughs> vasopilitis, what you really need is complete bed rest. That is your best chance of recovery. I think I would be in a very different situation than I'm in right now, and that's a large part of why I'm making this film i I think no one has to get this bad and um, exactly um so but um,
0: yeah, I mean you know that's that's one of the um you know, you go well, with my daughter, I brought her to, I'm not even going to mention who, but one of the best palliative care um, doctors who's supposed to specialize in this in teens, and they wanted her to do a boot camp, aerobics every day. And I'm up there saying, oh are, are these people out of their minds? She can't walk. Did you see her? We had to practically carry her in the door. They don't get it, you know, and I'm glad we didn't listen because I hear so many hor- horror stories like yours. Um, but th- as you said, you know, this, you're passionate about this making this film I'm passionate about getting the word out about this film but one of the ways that this started um, and we're going to go a little bit uh, more into you know really what your life is now um, you know why don't, why don't we do that first why don't you tell us a little bit about your life before you got ill and the impact that you know when everything changed um, I'm sorry
1: So sort of Whenever, how, what my life was like before I became ill. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess that's a little, little bit what you were saying. I mean, I was a very, um, you know, I I always hesitate to say this because there are these sort of stereotypes. It's too I mean, this is how you know that the world is wrong. There are, like the two most predominant stereotypes of people who get this is that they are hard-driving overachievers, and that they are people who are inordinately lazy. You can't get it together. <laughs> like, <laughs> and, and I'm not sure how both how both can be true. Um, but I was I was a very um, ambitious person, and I think I you know I I always dreamed of doing something with my life that would be meaningful and useful to others. And I I and I I didn't even really know what that meant, but I just had this belief that like that was what I was supposed to do because I um, had you know a hard life when I was a kid, and I have been incredibly lucky in my life, and I wanted to sort of share that in some way, and so um, I decided that I wanted to be a writer, and I wanted to um, be a journalist, and I traveled the world. I was in um, Beijing for a few years, although I kept getting calls from other places, so sort of Beijing was my home base, and I spent some time in India and in East Africa, and um, you know, I, I actually wonder what... Well, that played in predisposing me to this, and as much as I, you know, I had the sort of, you know, I breathed the um, fiberglass and the sort of toxic chemicals and you know all of that crap in the air in Beijing, and I was exposed to all kinds of, um, you know, microbes because I just I just traveled everywhere and I ate everything, and I did everything, and I lived life to the fullest. And um, and when I came back uh, to the U.S., um, I I went to school um, at Harvard, and so I was in Boston and. Um, you know, I, I, there were there were some signs of some, like, um, you know, I, I I knew that I found I was gluten intolerant, and and I and I started taking care of myself better or trying to. Um, but I think that by the time I was hit with this virus, I probably wasn't in the best physical health. I don't think that I knew it because I think from the outside, I was just you know I was still just this sort of young twenty eight year old who. Um, you know, it's in really good health, but I. But now that I know what I know about what is conducive mm-hmm. to good health, I think I probably wasn't. Right. Um, in terms of my life now, I mean, it was a real shock. I think you know, it's the sort of thing where you have no idea what's going on with you. Um, your doctors, the ones that you're seeing, and please specialists, have no idea what's happening. And so, I think at first, I didn't know how long run this would be. Mhm. I just mm-hmm. knew that it was serious. Right. And right. It was actually, you know, I have to say, like, um, uh, for the first few months after the neurological symptoms started, um, I was very often in a state where I wasn't able to speak and I couldn't use language. Um, I could understand language, but I couldn't speak. I, I had no verbal thoughts. And when you don't have any verbal thoughts, you can't really think about the past or conceive of the future
0: you can't wow
1: resonate. that's really and interesting it was, and it was actually a blessing because i would imagine I think if i i think if i had been more cognitively capable i would have worried wow. more but I. that's really that, that's
0: really <laughs> amazing because my the same thing happened to my daughter i mean it was an effort for her just to talk um, you wow. know, and that's a message I really want to get out because this is, you know, this was some at one point um, I don't know maybe a decade ago considered the yuppie virus, and it is just so obnoxious um, and, and and offensive to anyone that has this because this is this is just so life changing, um, you know, and and really. What I want to go into is this film because this is life changing for you and it's going to be life changing for everyone else. But the way this film started was because of your, you know, the severity of your symptoms. You started keeping a video diary. Um, because you said you lost the ability to write. So what was it that caused you to lose the ability to write? Was it that it prohibited you from physically writing, Um, you know, cramping? Was it the brain fog that comes with it, word retrieval? I know word retrieval is a big problem. The exhaustion? You know, what prompted you to start doing a video diary?
1: That's a really interesting question because – as I was th- you know, thinking about it, it's like well, actually, all of the above, depending on the day. Um right. I mean, so I, I I think that you know there were moments when I I really just completely lost my use of language completely, um, and then there were moments where I couldn't even move, um, and there, that, those are sort of the more severe symptoms. I think on a day-to-day basis, I just I, I was in a state at the beginning um, where I could not write. For more than sometimes five minutes, sometimes ten, sometimes ten words, without experiencing this extreme exhaustion. And by exhaustion, I mean, it, it just I think the thing. I mean, honest, I mean, the thing about this illness is that there are no words. Like we use these words, you know, I'm exhausted, I'm fatigued, I'm like to describe which, which describe normal healthy experiences to this illness. Every symptom I've experienced, I've never experienced before in my life. It feels completely nice. different. And, and and because, you know, most other people don't experience them, uh, there are no common words that we can use to describe them. I, I think that's a lot of the failing, which is part of the reason why I think images can be so powerful. But um, what would happen, and back to your question, what would happen was that I would, you know, I, I would just be, be typing a little bit on my computer, trying to write a really simple email. And all of a sudden, I would just... I would, just, I would not be able to continue. I would feel, um, you know, what I kind of think is a sort of, you know, an inflammatory response during my body because I was typing too much, because I was thinking too hard. I mean, that's how depleted I was of all of my resources. And when things got a little bit better, I could type for longer, but then I would look back at what I was writing. And... It would be, you know, I would think that I had written something cogent, and I would would switch words that didn't even sound alike. They'd be completely unrelated to each other. And I would make all kinds of mistakes, and I still do. And it's incredibly frustrating because, you know, I used to have um, a really, you know, good command of language. I I loved writing, and I was, you know, working on a book and um, have have always wanted to to be a writer. And so that, that was really, really disappointing to me, and I think I... I think I, I really struggled for a while to sort of figure out how would I still be myself when I lost something that was so central to my identity.
0: Well, um, you know, what I, I just, you know, when as you're saying this, you know, I just wanted to say, you know, I have a daughter your age and, you know, really, you know, I feel for you. And, you know, sometimes when you lose what you thought was your direction, your dream in life, you know, you find that your truth, path, and purpose, you know, it's bigger than what could have ever been when you go through some type of, you know, adversity like this. Um, So, you know, I hope you know that. And, you know, when you talk about powerful, I was shaking at the Kickstarter party the other night. I was literally, my body was shaking as I watched the trailer because it is so powerful and i 've watched a lot of videos and a lot of things on YouTube, and there is nothing like what you are putting out there because you are putting out there the reality of how this disorder consumes people and um it you know it it 's just incredible and you know we 're going to go into it in a little while. I want you to talk about some of the people that are there, but you know I would also assume i mean I met your husband he 's adorable um at the party the other night <laughs> but um you know, how do you deal with the emotional aspect of this? I mean, the physical part of it is just beyond. Like you said, you know, and my daughter was very young, and she would even say, I can't even explain to you what it feels like because I don't think anybody's ever felt this before, Um, the physical symptoms. But, you know, the emotional impact that it takes, you know, how did you deal with that? How did your husband, how do you deal with it?
1: Um, I I just want to say first that I really feel for your daughter, and when you – sort of tell me, some, tell me a quote like that and like oh my gosh that's my life too you know and that's part of what this experience has been I think this is why we've been able to raise so much of our goal so quickly on Kickstarter it's because I think people see themselves in the film and uh, just as I did as I was sitting in the interview room talking to people in, in the film and realizing I am not alone and this is Actually, a really common experience. I, in a doctor's office, I'm made to feel like I'm weird, or that something is, you know, really far. I, I'm sort of outside the, the bounds, right? But like, this is actually very common. Very not, not not common, but not uncommon. And I want to kind of try to write us back into, into the into the story. Um, my husband is amazing, and I um, I think have really um, grown, especially in the process of of sort of listening to other stories to understand just how lucky I am and um, to have that support, because I think that family support um, and the support of a partner um, uh, or or of a mother or of a sister is the most important thing in this illness, and not everyone has that. And, um, I mean, I, I think in terms of the emotional aspect, I mean, I... You know, I mean, he is—he's just sort of by nature in terms of his personality. He's a very upbeat person. He loves making jokes. I think he likes being married to me in part because I laugh at his jokes. And so, no matter how physically bad I'm feeling or how down I am, he's—he's he's there, and we create joy together. You know, whether
0: you really do, you know, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. And and so, you know, and 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 I—I I think we're both people who love adventure and. So we kind of treated this as a, as a, you know, our another great adventure, and um, and, and 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 so it, it's it's also this feeling of, of um, I mean, I, I can't even describe how close you, come. you 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 grow to a person when you go through something like this, and um, you know, I, I we were engaged to be married, and I, I, I kept telling him, Are you really sure you still want to do this? I don't know if mm-hmm. I'm going to get better. Like, right. you don't, you don't have to do this. And I went through a very long period where I felt guilty, um, because I, you know, I still do to some extent, because I wish that we could be, like, you know, traveling the world together and, I, and, you know, going out with our friends or, like, even going out to a restaurant down the road, which
0: is so far from my life. Right. Um, but right. at
1: the same time, we find a way to make our own joy. And... Um,
0: well, you've, you've I, I, taken on this journey together. I mean, he is right by yeah. your side with this film. It's a beautiful thing to watch. Um, you know, I think one of the problems um, that I think you face, my daughter faces, and um, Jessica, if I can't get her on now, I'm going to have her come on when I have Hillary Johnson come on. That would um, be great. But I think one of the problems is that the term is thrown around so loosely, oh, I have chronic fatigue syndrome, and they might have maybe a very mild case of it, that people that have the, you know, the M.E., I mean, it, it's it's like two different worlds. I mean, when you travel, you pack as if you're going away for a week to go into Manhattan, an hour drive, um, you know, with what you have to bring, and you need a wheelchair and you need a cot, and it's just it it's, it's it when I look at how it has affected your life, and you know how you're still finding the strength to do this, it's just unbelievable, um, you know. One of the things about this disorder is that the, it seems to really be very gender-related. I mean, I know there are men that get it, um, but there seems to be more women, or maybe women just present differently. Do you know what the difference is with, between the men and the women?
1: Um, well, so there's, there's actually um, – uh, another person you may have on at some point is Mady Hornig, who can tell you about that because um, they're doing a study at Columbia, and, and I think um, – that they may have found something interesting there, and oh, I'm not going to say anything more okay. I'm not sure if it's public or not yet or not. But I think, okay. I think, but but I think I think that um, I, I I think that there are definitely these really deep gender differences, and I think that it would be very interesting not just for this illness but for a wide range of um, autoimmune or the illnesses immune of immune dysfunction, dysfunction mm-hmm. where you have this sort of, I mean, the, the sort of 80-20 or 75-25 spread women-men that you find in ME mm-hmm. is, I think, the same as you find in MS, and it's the same as in a number of other diseases that disproportionately affect women. And so I, I, I don't know that that angle has been exploited enough in terms of, in terms of research. I, I've also been a little bit perplexed that this hasn't been more, and not to exclude the men <laughs> at all, but right. why this hasn't been more of a woman's health issue or a women's rights issue. Absolutely. As much as m- my perception is that women's health advocacy groups tend to take a very literal um, interpretation of what women's health means. So it's about like breasts and ovaries, which right. are really important, as we all know. But what makes women different from men is 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 a lot more than the sort of very obvious anatomical differences. And you know, I mean, our immune systems are different, right? Because I mean, we have to be able to have children. We have to be able to to we have to be able to silence or suppress certain aspects of our immunity or alter it in order to be able to carry a child with a term and not attack the fetus. And so, um, this is not remotely my area of expertise, um, but it's something. It's a question that I have. It's something that I, I I you know I do wonder about in terms of severity things. You know, I for me. Um, I don't think that everyone who is diagnosed with CSS has ME in the right. sort of ramsey sense of the word.
0: Mm-hmm. And the reason
1: is is just because the diagnostic criteria are super broad. The ones that we use now and the one that the C D C recommends. It's super broad. And it actually ex, does, does not include some of the hallmark symptoms. Like the like the the PACUDA the, the, the definition does not talk about these really severe neurological symptoms
0: that Boy, the I was yeah, the sensory. Yeah, all the a ones,
1: and, and, the, right. and the sound sensitivity, and the light sensitivity, and sort the, right. of the, 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 the overstimulation. And so, and so when you see when you present with those symptoms, people say, "Oh, okay, well that's not chronic disease syndrome, or you're you're kind of just crazy." And then when you when you don't present. With those symptoms, I mean, I, I think I think there are a lot of people who may have other conditions that are kind of lumped in, and I also think a lot of doctors who don't aren't really trained in understanding what this is and recognizing it use the name as a shorthand. So you might have like a sleep a sleep wake disorder and be very tired, and that's chronic fatigue, and so and so it, it's really kind of a big mess. When, when, I, when I say I ME, mean, I don't mean I'm not really talking about severity. Um, I am showing a lot of um, you know, the more severe cases, and, and I, 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 I'm I not even really exactly sure why. I find I think I just find the story is very compelling and important to well, show. Well, because,
0: you know, I, and I think it's important that you do that. Um, and, you know, the film is progressing, and I'm sure you'll have other people yeah. that... Um, but I,
1: I, but I, I just wanted to say really quickly that that the, the, the difference between ME and CFS is not severity. Even in these sort of historical outbreaks, you would have people who would get ME and some people, some people would recover. Some people would be less severely affected. And so it's not about severity. It's about trying to have a clear, very clear definition and theory of what this is. And so actually, as Dr. Enlander was saying before, you know, use the right tests and know how to apply them.
0: Exactly. And, you know, part of it also is, um, you know, if you you look at, like, my daughter, um, my oldest daughter actually had chronic fatigue syndrome, mild chronic fatigue syndrome after mono. And uh, I remember going to different doctors, and one of them said, you know, sometimes there's like a five-year period, and, you know, sometimes you start to see improvement when people get it very young. And she did. Um, And, you know, what I see with my daughter is that she was so sick. I mean, She couldn't pick up her head to drink. I'd have to, you know, give her... I'm really getting nauseous when I'm thinking about it. Um, You know, a drink with a straw. I mean, that's how sick she was. Um, And I think that the reason she's getting better is because the chronic fatigue portion of it is getting better. The fibromyalgia is still very bad. But the chronic fatigue, it just sort of eats at your body. Um, you know, it, it's horrendous, and I think it's important that you show the whole spectrum um, of, of what's going on. Um, you know, and Hillary um, Johnson I spoke to at the party, and, and she was saying, you know, people don't understand that kids can get this, teens can get this. And the good news is, they're finding that kids that get it seem to have more of a chance of um, having improvement than others that get it when they're in their twenties or thirties. Um, you know, but it's still devastating. Um, but I want to I start talking about the film and Kieran. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about Kieran, who she is, and um, you know how she got involved in this film, Canary in a Coal Mine.
1: So um, Kieran Tatanvis is our lovely creative producer, and she, um, you know, basically I, I was, as I was sort of coming up with this idea to do a film, um, which I, I, I knew that I needed to sort of enlist someone from the beginning. I, I wanted to do a Kickstarter campaign that would um, raise enough money to fund our film, and I thought, you know, in order to do that, we really need to show people something that's a very high quality um, where we've really gone out and interviewed people and, and kind of given some, you know, a kind of sampling of, like, here's what we could do if we could go all the way and do a 90-minute film. And so I wanted to find someone really good, and I was looking everywhere, and I have no background in film, and I have no sort of networks, and so I just posted this um, email on the Princeton Alumni Network, and she responded. And we chatted, and I think she was maybe the only person who <laughs> responded, so I got really lucky um, and you know it was this funny thing where um, we we really hit it off, and she understood the story in a deeply intuitive way, even though she has no personal connection to it, and I don't really know why I think um you know a part of it is maybe her own background um, she's a rather a cosmopolitan person I think sort of understands um sort of had a seat for the craft um and and she's just she's just been wonderful and she's been she's passionate I. Very, very passionate about it.
0: Very, and, and this isn't and a documentary. This is more of a narrative film. And the people you feature are, are truly remarkable. Um, as the and the experts that you weave in, I mean, are just incredible. So, tell us a little bit about some of the experts. You've mentioned their names before, but you know, let the listeners know what they're in for with this film, um, with the experts, and then tell us about Howard. Um, he's incredible. I'm hoping to have him on because I'm going to be doing a series um, for your film um, where I'm going to be interviewing a couple of the people that you have on and a couple of the experts. Um, so tell us a little about Howard and Mary and Lisa. Um, sure, no problem.
1: Um, just to clarify, the, the documentary versus narrative, I mean I, basically we're trying to do creative nonfiction,
0: you know, sort of in the literary
1: equivalent, sort of to tell stories um, about truth and hopefully in a way to kind of move people. Um, the, so we have a really we have a really good group of people that we've interviewed so far. Um, so we've interviewed Dr. Enlander, we've interviewed um, Nancy Klimas, who is, is, is an immunologist um, in in Florida. We've, we've interviewed um, Mady Hornig. We have a lot of other people on our wish list. Um, so uh, we really do want to get a wide range of voices of experts who may not necessarily agree with each other on everything, which is, um, you know, what science is about. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's messy and there are debates. Um, we uh, um, are also uh, sort of uh, interviewing a number of patients. Um, Howard Bloom is a, um, <laughs> a polymath, and he is irrepressible. Um, he's someone who, I mean, he's just, he has just a huge personality, and, and he's someone who is, you know, I, I don't think this There are people who can be both into quantum physics and rock stars um, Mm -hmm. in a single lifetime and kind of pull it off. So he's wonderful. And he was bedridden for 15 years, Mm -hmm. five of which he could not speak. And today he, like, as he will say to, you know, anyone, like, um, I can do 490 push-ups. And, I mean, that's, that's a great story to ask him about how he got from being in that place. Oh, where I plan now. on it. And I plan um, on
0: talking about him growing up, too, because that man is, you know, I, I have a, sh- a show on my network about genius, about giftedness. And if there is anyone <laughs> that fits that category, it is Howard. Yes.
1: No, for sure. And a very generous person. Um,
0: so, so we have
1: him. We have... Um, We've uh, done some filming with a woman, Lisa, in Toronto. Um, we weren't able to interview her, unfortunately, remotely, because um, she can't really speak. Um, and so we're, we're, we're looking forward, um, if we reach our funding goal, to be able to go and spend time with her and try to tell her story even with those limitations. Um, so we're looking forward mm-hmm. to the creative challenges of that. Um, We're also interviewing Jessica, who is amazing. She um, will tell her own story when she's on, but um, I think what really I found really compelling about her story was, you know, what you talked about a little bit earlier about how something really awful happens to you and it actually leads you into finding, um, you know, a a new path or a greater mission. And she's been running this amazing charity called Share a Star from her bed um, along with her father where they raise money and help to sort of give support to children who are dealing with rare or terminal diseases. And so this idea of a, of a woman who can't leave her own bed um, helping and giving in that way is just mm-hmm. remarkable. Um, but I think, I think it's very natural. When you, when you don't have a lot to give, you, you, you want to give that much more in a way because you, you, you understand. Um, so I think you find so-
0: a purpose. You you absolutely find a purpose, you know, in these things. I mean, I see my daughter's only 17 now. And, you know, I see how different she is now from the other kids her age. Um, It just changes you. Um, You know, but you feel... Go ahead.
1: Well, I just wanted to say that I am so much more grateful for every single living, breathing moment of my life. I am hyper aware because there's not a single moment that I do not feel sick. I feel sick constantly, yep. and I'm hyper-aware of my body in a way that I never was in my life. Um, you know, my mother used to always say, you know, stay in your body, be aware of your body. I was, I was a mind. I was uh, running around the world <laughs> to sort of detach my body, and I, I wish and I hope that through this film we can not only, um, you know, educate people and show the world what the disease looks like, but also bring back some of those lessons that I think we've all learned from being in that place
0: because I wish
1: it were possible to see what that is without having to go through this.
0: And, you know, it, it shows, I mean, to me, when I left, because, like I said, I was, I was shaking when I watched the documentary. Um, and I think that it, it, it's powerful because it shows you really, truly what it is and how it affects someone's life. But really the messages of hope and the anger in these people, the, which they deserve to be angry, is just incredible because they've turned that anger and that hopelessness into such something so empowering. Um, you know, and, and, and from what I've done on my show, I mean, I do all types of disorders and, and illnesses for children and teens. But what I found was that whether I was talking about Down syndrome, cerebral palsy, or cancer, the emotions were universal. And that's one thing that you say about this film, um, that, you know, that you feel it, it, it's a universal story.
1: Well, I, I you know, I, I did not at first. When this first started happening to me, it felt incredibly individual and, and, and like I was, I was having this really idiosyncratic experience. I was just crazy and outside of, of, of normal human life. And then as I started learning more about my illness, I found this um, really large community of other people living with ME, and that was wonderful. Um, as I started sharing more and more about what I was going through, I started, um, you know, finding people, you know, old friends who kind of came out of the woodwork with various um, cases of being you know, misdiagnosed or poorly treated by doctors or I have a friend, Eva Hagberg, who um has donated some, some books to the um the campaign and, you know, she was treated for anxiety for years, um and because she was busy until doctors, you know, found that she actually had some type of growth in her brain. So it's just it's 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 if you start to realize that um, it's not just about me. That there is are a lot, you know, many sort of broader issues here surrounding chronic illness. How we treat people with chronic illness, how how chronic illness affects women in different ways than it affects men, and and so so I think there's the a universality um, among sort of people who are who have this experience of being sick. Um, and being not believed and uh, really having to fight for themselves or go out on their own um, because of the way the medical system is structured today and the way that doctors are trained. Um, do you hope, and I, I think we aspire to this in the film, to speak to people whether or not they've had the experience of chronic illness because I think that at every point someone will face a really difficult moment, or it will happen to someone that they love. Um, It could be health. It could be something else. Um, But they'll face an obstacle that will destroy the vision that they had for their future. And I think that there's a way in which we can crumble in the face of that, or we can try to find a way to make good, whatever that means. And I think that is really the larger story that I want to tell, the larger Sort of human
0: story behind this. Absolutely. And, you know, you're doing it beautifully. And, you know, as you said the other night, you know, you, um, th- with most independent films, um, you know, you need funding for the film, and most, as most other um, filmmakers do, you go through Kickstarter. So, you know, basically, how can we help you get this film done? I mean, I cannot tell you how important this film is, not only to me, you know, as a mother of a child going through this, but to all of those, I mean, million People uh, that do not have a voice—you know, they're who are suffering and are invisible. Um, you know, tell us how you um, are funding this because I just want to say that you just had the Kickstarter um, launch party two days ago, and you're already almost at um, your first goal, uh, which is amazing. So, um, you know, tell us how you're doing this and how we can help you. Sure. Um,
1: well, so we we launched uh, around 1 p.m. on Tuesday. Um, it's now Thursday evening, and so we've been um, live for I don't know 53 hours, and we are 80% of the way to our goal. We've raised um, almost $40,000, and um, our, our, our original the original goal that we set to raise on Kickstarter was $50,000. The budget for our film is $200,000. We thought. You know, it'll be hard because no one really cares about people with this illness. And so, you know, it's it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a hard campaign, but we'll get the money. And if we can get to 50K, we can then go to outside funders and say, there's an audience for this story. People want to hear this story. And we want people to prove to outside funders that this is a story worth telling and worth their support. And I got it wrong. I got it totally
0: wrong. Well, tell everybody how Kickstarter works, because uh, you and I I I know how it works, but it's important people get it.
1: Yeah, no problem. So Kickstarter is um, this sort of fundraising platform where people who have creative projects or are designing a new product or what have you can come and crowdfund, um, you know, sort of either a prototype or like their project. So for films, it's, it's, it's crowdsourcing the funding to make a film. And it's an all-or-nothing campaign, so if you don't reach your goal, you don't you don't get to keep any of the money that you've raised. And so we set a goal of 50000 which is a quarter of our budget. And the reason why I set that goal was because I did not want to have to – like, I, I, I knew I didn't have the physical capacity to do what it would take to fund the entire film on Kickstarter. But I, I think the thing I didn't understand was that the, the raising the money that we needed was not about – um, other people caring about our story—it was about us caring about our own story—and there are a lot of us out there. And we have been just so embraced with love in the last two days in ways that I cannot even begin to tell you. And I think people are sort of looking at this film and feeling like we have a voice. And 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 I um, am trying to raise the
0: entire
1: budget of two hundred thousand dollars on Kickstarter by November twenty-second. And so I need your help to get there, and um, crowdfunding, you know, the way that it works is you um, raise money by getting small amounts, small donations from lots and lots of people. So um, if you've been compelled by um, the story, if you go to um, the Kickstarter website and you search for Canary in a Coal Mine or or go to j.mp forward slash Canary Film and you feel compelled by the story, please give, and then share. (laughs) share it everywhere. Email us to people, talk about it with your friends, post it on Facebook or Twitter if you use Facebook and Twitter, and and really just get the word out for us, and that would be the best thing that you can do, because if we could raise our entire budget of $200,000, it would mean so much for this project, because I I can't, I am not well, and I cannot go and fundraise in the way that most directors and creators would, and so um, that's why this platform is so amazing for us because it allows us to kind of aggregate our voice and say, you know, we care about this. Um, there's a second project which is growing out of this that I wanted to talk about briefly um, when, Marianne, you were talking about voicelessness. I have received so many stories from people, and every time I open my email, I'm, I'm I'm either crying with gratitude or my heart is breaking. People who send me photos of themselves in the emergency room, people who are, you know, fighting because the state is trying to take away their children because their children have ME and the doctors don't know what that is and so they don't believe them. And, right. and it's just a lot of really powerful things happening. And, and so what we, we've decided to, to do is start this website to allow people to share their own stories and to post videos and photos and text because I think this Kickstarter campaign, I mean, it, it would be lovely to raise the money that we need for the film I think there's a larger moment happening here where even if we're sick and weak and at home in our beds if we can all sort of speak and shout with one voice it's going to be I really think we can change the world and whenever I say that I know it sounds it sounds a little crazy but I think it's already starting to happen and so um, please oh, it's, give it's, please share the project and it please absolutely share
0: your is and I just want to just be clear to our listeners that um, you know, even though you do, did set the goal much lower than you needed for this film, and people are just responding like crazy, if you don't get the $50,000, um, you don't get to keep the 40000 And by the way, I'm online right now watching, and in the past 10 minutes that you've been talking, you got three more donations. Um, <laughs> which is awesome i'm just watching the numbers roll here but you know keep in mind that if if you feel for this film if you think that you would like to contribute and and when you go on if you go to kickstarter just type in canary in a coal mine in the search and it'll come up and they've got some really cool packages where um you can give a dollar you can give you know four hundred dollars um you know they have different things that you can get like signed um photos and um, hoodies and you know you can Howard Bloom is even giving away a 10-minute um, one-on-one conversation so um, you know there are a lot of great things to do so please go to Kickstarter type in canary in a coal mine and give what you can and when we have this website up we'll put it up um, it's on our website um, at the com. you can go to the blog and everything is there you can watch the trailer which is incredible um, you can go to the website, Canary in a Coal Mine. It's www.canaryinacoalminefilm.com and you can watch the trailer there, and you can watch um, Jennifer and Kieran talk about the project. And, you know, I'm just so thrilled to be even a little part of, um, you know, helping you get this out. Thank
1: you so much, Marianne, for all of your support. It has been wonderful.
0: Well, it's great, and like I said, I apologize to Jessica um, Taylor, who we were trying to get on by Skype. I don't know what happened, but I'm going to be interviewing um, the author of um, Osler's Web, um, Hillary Johnson, and I'm going to be bringing Jessica on um, for that interview, and I hope to have a few more people and do a series um, on this amazing film. So the best of luck to you, Jennifer. Thank you so much. Have a lovely evening. You're welcome. Um, As I end each show, you are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent with us at The Coffee Clatch. You can find us at www.thecoffeeclatch.com. Have a great night, everyone.